All right. Good morning, Grace Covenant. What a beautiful day to be in the Lord's house today. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Ephesians chapter 3. We are almost to our halfway point. We will wrap up chapter 3 today, and then we'll get into chapter uh, 4 next week. So it's a big pivot point. Um, But today is a a fantastic opportunity to look into the heart of Paul, um, to see him and how he prays for those that he's ministered to and writing to. Uh, It's a fantastic, fantastic uh, portion of Scripture today. I'm very excited to share it with you. There's there's just so much here that we get to to look at and and understand and learn. So Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 14 through 21. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. Uh, If you're able, rise with me um, in honor of the one who gave us this word as we read this morning together. The scriptures say, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, And that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather as a body. Uh, We come humbly before you. Um, We do ask for you to give us the gift of repentance for any sins uh, that may have beset us this week um, that would hinder our worship, Lord. I pray that we will be renewed in your spirit, um, be drawn to you by what we learn from your scriptures today, um, and that we will see a, a glimpse into the heart of Paul for the saints. Um, I pray that you would remove any hindrances from me, uh, that you would use me simply as a mouthpiece for your word, and that the Spirit would carry those words um, to the hearts of your people this morning. We glorify you and thank you in all that you are, um, and praise you with all that we do in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So this morning, kind of give you a a brief catch-up coming up through Ephesians over the last couple of chapters. Uh, We're wrapping up chapter 3 in On a high level, um, Ephesians is really broken into two parts, um, the way Paul wrote it. The first three chapters are talking mainly about the indicative, where Paul explaining what salvation is, what Christ does, um, his heart for the people that he is writing to. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he shifts gears pretty dramatically and changes into an imperative. um, And that is a command. So Paul is going to shift gears after today. We're going to shift gears with him uh, next Sunday. And we're going to be in chapter 4, verse 1 next week and and shift gears into what the impact of what he has explained about Christ should and how it should impact our lives going forward. But before he does that, he's going to take a moment and break into prayer. Um, One of the most impactful prayers uh, that Paul, the recorded of Paul's, in my opinion, is here in the middle of of chapter 3, or middle of Ephesians, excuse me, at the end of chapter 3. And he's going to take a moment after just finished explaining, he has just finished um, telling the Gentiles about the mystery of Christ, his role in sharing that with the Gentiles. Verse 13 finishes, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart in my affliction on your behalf, which are your glory. And now he's going to say, for this reason. And so 
the motivation for his his prayer this morning uh, that we're going to cover this morning is to help those who he, whom he is writing to not lose heart. And so <clears throat> we're going to see a glimpse into Paul, uh, him explaining all these things, saying these are the things that you need to know. These are the things you need to understand. But don't worry about me. Don't lose heart, even though I'm in prison. And then he prays for God to give them the very thing he just told them to do. And this is going to set up a pattern for the entire rest of the book of Ephesians, because we're going to see that everything he's telling these, these uh, folks in, in Ephesians to do, his readers, he is showing them that their dependence is on God. Um, so often when the book of Ephesians is preached, I've heard it throughout my entire life. If you've grown up in the church, you may have heard the same. When someone preaches Ephesians, they almost always preach chapters 4, 5, or 6 on all the things that we're supposed to go and do. And that's okay. We need to understand what the Christian life is supposed to look like. But we have to understand Paul's heart. It is evident in this prayer. That's why this prayer is so important. As a pivot point, we have to understand in this prayer that Paul is telling us things that only God can give us the strength to do. Only because of Christ in us can we accomplish the things that he's going to now tell us in the rest of the book. That Christ is the central figure in the believer's life, bar none. That our knowledge and pursuit of him as the gift of God, from his glory, for his glory, is where we live. And so this, this is a vitally important pivot point for us to understand the rest of the book. Because if we don't, if we don't log what we learned today in, in our minds and make sure that we filter the rest of the book of Ephesians, we're going to think that the rest of the time we're here, we're reading a bunch of law back into our lives. I can just tell you, that's how, that's how you will read this many indicative, or excuse me, imperatives, this many commands in a row. You will go, now the law is back. Now the law is back. But when we understand what the law is for in light of Christ, it makes a world of difference how we live. We are no longer with the weight of the law. We are in the freedom of Christ to live out what he commands us to do because we love him out of gratitude, because we want to glorify him. So it's dramatically important. So let's dig in this morning <clears throat> to this prayer. My first point, uh, if you do have the notes, prayer for strength in Christ. So Paul's going to break this down into three points this prayer into three different sections the prayer itself is an 86 in the greek an 86 word sentence that's a mouthful so this prayer is an 86 word sentence and so in one just one breath if you will he he lays out all of this prayer to god so let's focus in first on verses 14 15 and 16 for point number one prayer for strength in christ so paul begins his prayer after just, again, coming off of telling them not to lose heart, he says, for this reason, often authors will use the same opening phrase on a section later on in the epistle that he wants you to think back to for the reason he's writing what he's writing right now. Does that make sense? So he uses for this reason in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now he's using for this reason in verse 14. He's wanting us to understand that this builds upon one another. And so he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. So as we begin to break this down and we look at what Paul is saying here, I want us to first notice the absolute humility with which he begins this prayer. Believe it or not, in the time of Paul, it was very uncommon, in culturally speaking, for Jews to pray kneeling. They simply did not kneel to pray. Uh, in fact, the normal posture for Judaism is standing or standing with arms raised for prayer. 
because the Jewish people, if you understand, and we've talked about this earlier, so I won't rehash it too much, but the Jews saw their lineage as superior to all other human beings and closest to God out of everyone. So they, out of anyone, had the right to stand before God to pray. And so Paul taking a humble stance, a humble posture, and saying, I bow my knees before the Father, it's echoing and mimicking some of the Old Testament, because we're talking about New Testament Judaism, some of the Old Testament expressions of the heroes of the faith. Solomon knelt before the temple dedication. Daniel kneeling. If you remember, Daniel knelt at the window to pray to God in, in um, obstinance to the, the king's command of that day. So kneeling has always had a, a special humility, a special emotion, um, a magnificent honor to the one to whom they are kneeling. Uh, so I want us to understand the, the, the use of Paul saying he bows his knees before the Father carries so much weight in a Jewish context. Um, even for us, as Americans, we don't bow our knees to very many people, and that's something America is proud of, right? So even for us, taking that knee, it really does communicate the humility that Paul is trying to express uh, that he has to the Father. And so now he's going to say, from whom, in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So he's bowing before the Father, and then he elaborates on who it is that he's praying to. It's the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul begins with humility and then raises the Father on high. Because I want us to think about what Paul is saying when he looks at from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The Greek word for family there is patria, which is where we get the word patriarchy or fatherly headship. And with Paul's usage of in heaven and on earth, you'll notice that he does not bring in, as he has in other times in Ephesians, he does not bring in the idea of um, the powers of the air or the princes of the air. So he's specifically talking about the angelic beings and more specifically the universal church. So the father of the universal church. And the reason why I brought up the word patria is not just to give you another Greek word. It's because of the context behind it. Patria, when used in the context of, of speaking about a family, is referencing the head of an entire family of which it is named and the owner of the one, or excuse me, to explain that the one who named that family is the owner. So I want you to think with me all throughout the scriptures, how many times do we see those whom God calls out and he changes their name? Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Paul, even the one that we're reading, used to be Saul. And when he expresses this idea of patria, he is specifically talking about the universal church who has been renamed as a new creature, who has been renewed under the Father, the Lord of all the elect. And so when we understand that this, this family that Paul is, the, the, excuse me, the family of the Father, it brings a new level of, of absolute magnificence to God. That he has brought those families of heaven and earth together, the universal church. As Paul has already explained in chapters 2 and 3, he's already explained this universal church. He's already explained how the Gentiles and the Jews are brought together. And now he's giving God praise for being the one who has renamed the elect, remade them, made new creature, creatures, excuse me, and created a new family in him. 
So we see Paul bringing himself lower and raising God higher for his prayer. A simple side note, how often do our prayers reflect that attitude? I just want you to think about that. You don't have to answer, but I want you to think about how often do our prayers bring us lower and bring God higher? Or how many of our prayers do we have a laundry list of things that we want done our way? And we take a second and pray about it and just hope for the best. Just think about that. But as we continue here in verse 16, Paul's request to God is now here. So he's praised God. He's brought himself lower. Verse 16, he says that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Talk about a loaded sentence. Let me read it again. That he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So let's recap where we're at so we understand what he's asking for. Verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. Does, every, does anyone have a large gap there between 13 and 14 with a heading? That says prayer for Saul. Anybody have a Bible that does that? That is a very unfortunate heading. Because that really breaks up Paul's thought process. So I want you to read it like it's not there. Okay, read it like it's not there. Read it like there's no verses. Let's read it together. Follow along. We're going to skip right through. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart in my afflictions on your behalf, which are your glory. For this reason I bow my knees. So he's humbling himself before the Father, from whom every family, raising the Father up, Verse 16, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The thing that he just told the Gentiles to do, which was to not lose heart at the afflictions of Paul, which are your glory, turns right around and asks the Father to give them the strength and the spirit to do just that. And so when we read this in context and not worry about the verse uh, notifications or the, the split for the heading, we can see that Paul is giving, or asking, excuse me, the believers who are reading this letter to be given the power from God through his spirit to do exactly what he has just asked or told them to do. But notice specifically where that power is going to come from. According to the riches of his glory. Who is the his? The father that we just mentioned. According to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit. From the glory of God, for his glory, from the glory of the everlasting Father, Paul is asking him to bestow upon the readers strength with power through his spirit. He is asking for the spirit itself to fill up, and we're going to see that wording used here in just a moment, to fill up these believers, these readers, so that they cannot lose heart. So that they can do the very things that Paul has just been asking them to do. This is the mindset of Paul. The reason why I'm emphasizing this so much is because Paul is asking God to give his readers the strength to do the very thing he's asking them to do. The mindset of the Apostle Paul is that what he is commanding them to do cannot be done without God. What Paul is asking them to do cannot be done without the Spirit pouring forth into them through his power, for his glory. And then notice where this power resides through his spirit in the inner 
man. In the original language, the idea of the inner man, we're going to see it here in just a moment, even more explained. The idea of the inner man is the utmost inner part of the human makeup. It is what makes us who we are. We all have, generally speaking, a fairly similar body, do we not? Bones, right? Flesh, muscle. But what makes us so different, what makes us who we are is our inner man. Some Sometimes the Old Testament would call it the bowels or the, 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 the innards of the individual because according to them, that was the innermost part that they couldn't see, the center of the man. In the New Testament, it's often called the heart or the seat of the emotions. Um, in fact, if you look at verse 17, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Fun fact, that's the only place in the entire Bible that it talks about Jesus living in someone's heart. That's been blown out of proportion today. But let's think about the Holy Spirit living in the inner part of us who we are now has the strength of God within us. The very innermost parts of who we are as a human being has been conformed and made new. Paul has just explained that for three chapters, has he not? For three chapters, he told us how everyone is new. And now he says, in that new area, in that new inner man, who you are as a new creature has the power of the living God through his spirit residing in you, the strength in you. So although I may be emphasizing the fact that we can't live how Paul tells us to without the strength of God, we also have no excuse because we have the strength of God. There's a very fine line to walk in that. Did everybody catch what I said there? Yes, we depend on the strength of God to do what Paul is telling us to do, but we have no excuse to not do what Paul says because we have the strength of God. So that's what I want us to, to take away from this first point. Our point of application, the so what idea of these first three verses, is to ensure that number one, there's a couple of points, but number one, leaders pray like Paul. Especially leaders pray like Paul. Men, lead your family praying like Paul. Lead your wife praying like Paul. Pray for your kids like Paul, in a humble spirit, looking to raise up the, the father, praying for that strength to pour out into your children and to your wives. If you're a leader in a corporation, if you're a leader in your job, pray like Paul. If you don't pray for your co-employees, co I highly challenge you to do so. Moms, pray like Paul for your husband, for your children. Use the example of Paul starting this prayer in humility, raising the Father up, and praying for the very strength of the Spirit to live within the inner man. The reason why we have to pray like this, the reason why I'm so emphatic on this, is we cannot be, or excuse me, we cannot do this life in our own strength. We cannot bring glory to God in our own strength. It is only His strength within. I would ask each of you, another point of application, where do you find your strength? Where do we find our strength? Do you find it in worldly philosophies? What is the next fad? Do you look to your own strength, your own power? I'm going to white knuckle this. I'm going to white knuckle it hard. How many of us have thought that about something we probably shouldn't have? Anybody else besides me? Okay? The knuckles get tired after a while, I can tell you, because we don't have the strength to do that. 
But where are you looking for your strength? Paul is making it very evident here to the people that he's written this letter to, explain the glories of Christ, that salvation is of God alone. And yet he comes and tells them and prays to the Father for the strength to be poured out on them so that they would have the power through the Spirit to do the exact thing that he's asking them. Remember, we cannot live the Christian life without the strength of God. We would not be believers without the strength of God through his spirit. So first point was a prayer for strength. Number two, prayer for the knowledge of Christ. Prayer for the knowledge of Christ. So the first thing Paul asked for from God was the strength and the spirit. The second thing Paul is now asking for is for knowledge. Let's read verses 17 through 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So let's look at this together and see what Paul is continuing to further explain about Christ and the Spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The reason why I mentioned a moment ago about Jesus dwelling in the hearts there um, is that the idea of Christ just accepting Christ into your heart or um, say these three little words and Christ will come live in your heart. This one little verse has been blown wildly out of proportion um, and twisted to mean things that it's not meant to mean. Yes, the spirit of Christ indwells us upon salvation, but we don't ask him to come live in our heart. Um, that is a, a false view of the gospel. Um, it is, frankly, a, an emotional um, trigger to try to get people to make a decision um, under emotional duress. Um, and I, I categorically deny that, that type of verbiage. Christ saves us. And then through saving us, he indwells us in our innermost beings with his spirit. We have no say in that. We don't lock our doors of our heart. That mentality has, has done a lot of damage to the Christian church. So I wanted to pause there just for a moment and say adamantly, that is not what Ephesians itself in letter form teaches. This verse has been ripped kicking and screaming out of context and used to emotionally manipulate for far too long. So let's reject that idea of asking Jesus into your heart. Does this verse say that Christ indwells us? Absolutely. Does heart here mean that it's the innermost part of man? Absolutely. I'm not denying any of that. What I'm saying is let's not use it outside of what Scripture uses, use it, it, uses it as in context. Wow, did you guys see? Wow, my tongue just gave up there for a second. Okay. So the, excuse me, the indwelling of the Spirit is, equ is equated with Christ dwelling in us through faith. Through faith. So the act of the gift of faith that we are given by God through the, through the outworking of the Spirit is where Christ dwells, is because of, is why Christ dwells within us, and that us being firmly rooted and grounded in love. So let's think about that second half of verse 17, being firmly rooted and grounded in love. Paul is using two different analogies here. Let's, let's think these analogies out so that we can understand and grasp really what he's trying to say. Rooted. So think of a tree. A tree being rooted. What is some of the, the strongest or tallest trees that you've ever seen? 
Have anyone ever seen those cool scientific pictures where it takes like some kind of a photograph and you can see just where the roots go, how expansive it is, how beautiful it is. I mean, it's just beautiful. It almost looks like it's sometimes the, the, the bottom sides are bigger than the top sides, right? The branches that go into the dirt are bigger than the, the sides that, that grow above. Firmly rooted in love. Keep that word in love in the back of your mind. And then he says grounded in love. This idea is a foundation. Rooted and grounded. We are rooted like trees in the love of Christ. We are grounded, our foundation, everything that we are. He's referencing back to earlier in the book when he talked about buildings and the master cornerstone, the foundations. Paul is trying to make a point that Christ's love is the very foundation of who we are as believers. Everything we are has to be rooted in the love of Christ. And yet he's praying for that to be gifted to them by the Father, through the strength of the Spirit, and the power of God. You guys see where he's building this? Everything that I'm, I'm discussing in this prayer, everything that Paul writes here, is foundationally asked by Paul from God as a gift to the believers. Daryl Box says this about this particular section of Scripture. The ultimate goal in all of this is that they might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The reality of Christ's love is to so overwhelm them that it penetrates beyond understanding into life. To so understand the love of Christ that it penetrates beyond understanding into life. Do you see the argument that Paul is making about being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ so that that then produces in our lives? To be so grounded and foundationally rooted in the love of the, the one who would give himself up for us. To be so grounded and rooted in understanding Christ took the wrath of God that was meant for us upon himself that that then affects us in every area of our lives. Paul is setting up the entire rest of the book of Ephesians from 4 through 6 when he's going to give us all these things about what the Christian life looks like. But first, he wants them to know through the power of God, by the strength of the Spirit, through the gift of God, by faith in Christ, that these believers would be so rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that we don't become distracted and try to white-knuckle it. Do you see where the foundation has to be first? Before Paul can tell them what to do, they have to be grounded and rooted in the love of Christ. Because if they're not, they will depend on themselves. And so will we. So this idea of being rooted and grounded in love is called different things throughout Scripture. So I wanted to give you just a few examples of different terminologies. I'm not going to read all these passages. You're more than welcome to write them down. But I want to make sure that we understand what Paul is trying to express here in different wordings from other parts of Scripture. So as we move on into verse 18, just I want you to have your pen ready for these because I'm going to give them to you in just a minute. So as we move on to verse 18, it continues with that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. What a four-dimensional description of something massive 
what they're trying, what Paul's trying to communicate is it's so big we can't even begin to comprehend. But I'm using it very specifically. Realize that he is not giving the breadth, length, and height, and depth does not have a specific reference. How many have read this as it tying into the next verse where it says, and to know the love of Christ? And so we automatically think, okay, so he's talking about the love of Christ. But in wording, in the wording here in the English, it actually translates very well. That is a different thought. The and is on top of the breadth and length and height and depth. So we're supposed to know the breadth and length and height and depth in context of what it says there would be all of redemptive history. The immense knowledge and wisdom of God in Christ displayed to us as we understood now, because Paul has essentially walked us through the redemptive history of God in Ephesians up till now. He starts with, God before time, what is verse chapter 1, verse 4, I think it is, before the foundations of the earth. And he has walked us through up to where they are now in establishing the church between Jew and Gentile. And now he says, he prays to God that we would have the strength through the power of the Spirit to be firmly rooted and grounded in the love of Christ and that we can comprehend with all the saints, those who are set apart, those who are believers, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And then he says, and the love of Christ. That is two different ideas. The breadth and length and height of, and depth of what God does in human history is beyond comprehension. We have to have a supernatural strength from God through the spirit, the power within us to even understand to comprehend, to begin to even in our finite minds, begin to look into what God has revealed to us. Because it's beyond comparison. It's beyond comparison. We, we, we see everything in a three-dimensional, don't we? Paul is using a four-dimensional description for a reason. Because that's how he describes something in that time that can't be understood. It is only the strength of the Spirit by the gift of God through his power, do you, I'm repeating the same thing over and over. Do you see where this is coming from? And so we have to have this gift of God to comprehend with the saints, the believers, how vast the redemptive plan, the wisdom of God is, who God is, all, all of the things that are involved in the redemptive history. And then verse 19, he goes on to say, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. To know the love of Christ. So he's already prayed that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And now he's praying also that we would comprehend and know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Anyone that tells you they truly understand and comprehend the love of Christ is lying to you. It's beyond our human comprehension. By the grace of God, the Spirit reveals a small fraction that we might continue to grow in it. But anyone that says they can fully comprehend the love of Christ is against Scripture. It says it right there. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Now, what that does not mean is that we have an excuse not to study to learn more about our Savior. 
Because that's what Paul is praying for these Gentiles, is he not? Through the strength of the, of the Spirit and the inner man, we would then begin to comprehend and understand the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. He is saying in a supernatural way, we have a limited understanding of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Therefore, it's only a gift of God so that no one may boast. And then we understand and grow in the knowledge of Christ by understanding his love that we are then filled up to all the fullness of God. That what little bit we do know, did you know that the little bit of information that we have on the love of Christ, the little bit of comprehension that we have as a supernatural gift from God fills us up to overflowing? We can't, we, we can't even begin to comprehend. And then as we continue to grow in Christ, guess what? That knowledge, he gives us a little bit more to hold, but we're still overflowing. And this is not a knowledge, this is not an intellectual head knowledge. This is already we've been given the faith in Christ. And we know that we have the love of Christ. And we know that he loves us and did all these things for us that Paul has just spent three chapters describing. And then that translates into our lives. That translates into how we live. It sets us up for the next three chapters of the book. Because without that knowledge of Christ, without his love and understanding what he did for us, and being firmly rooted and grounded in his work, not our own, being firmly and, 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 and um, grounded and rooted in the work of God, in the, in, in, the, in the indwelling power of the Spirit within us, that knowledge doesn't overflow out into our lives where we are then living as he's calling us to live. It's all an act of Christ. This is also described in other places of Scripture as the union with Christ. He indwells us with his spirit. We are unified with him. So I want to give you some examples of some wording, as I mentioned a moment ago. That way, if you had notes, you could take these. We're described as vine and branches or olive tree and limbs. Vine and branches or olive trees and limbs. That's in John 15, 1 through 10. John 15, 1 through 10. And Romans 11, 17 through 24. Romans 11, 17 through 24. Another example of worded is unity, our unity with Christ is like the union of the Father and Son. John 17, 20 through 23. John 17, 20 through 23. We're also, you described the union with Christ is also described here in Ephesians later on. We're going to get there in a couple weeks as the head and the body, being united like the head and the body in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Then there's the husband and wife analogy, also from Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. And then what about cornerstone and other stones being built into a building? So using um, construction analogies. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. And also 1 Peter uses that same analogy. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. So the cornerstone and the other stones is Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. Now you may ask me why I went through such detail on giving you those. Because I want you to go back and look at the union 
of us in Christ because scripture talks about it over and over and over. They give us, he gives us the spirit um, inspired those who are writing the scriptures to give us multiple analogies so that we can wrap our finite minds around what this means. Because our idea of union is wildly different. I'm going to take just a moment to warn you what I'm not saying because it's becoming pervasive in the church today. This is not a mysticism. This is not a new age oneness. This is not an Eastern religion idea of Buddhism and Hinduism, those ideas where their religions are built on the fact that we are to become a one with a higher consciousness, that we lose our identity, and we become one with the universe. That is not the kind of union that Paul is talking about. But this is, is creeping into the church today. The New Age has been here. It's been said that the church is usually 10 to 15 years behind the culture. Guess what? It's time for the New Age to start showing up in, in, in um, <clears throat> waves of, of indoctrination. It just, that's just where our culture is versus the church. New Age has taken leaps and bounds in popularity in the last 20 years. It's here. It's in the church. So I wanted to warn you that is not what Paul is talking about, this mystical union or Eastern New Age kind of oneness mentality. We keep our distinct identities. Christ is Christ. We are us, but we are united in him. Do you see why we have to have a supernatural gift to even begin to understand this? But by the grace of God, we have that. And that's why this prayer is so important for us to understand, because Paul knows that his readers need the gift of the Spirit to understand what he's explaining to them, to then impact them in the way that he wants it to. I want to read you another quote describing this particular section before we move on. Lynn Kohick says, Paul asks that the Ephesians receive strength at the center of their being. This strength flows from God's Spirit into the believer's inner being, from this position of power, the sort of power that comes from the cross, believers may drink from the vast reservoir of love that is theirs in Christ. This love that God grants to the believer's heart is a love whose depth and height, whose width and length is beyond human comprehension, yet can be experienced and grasped by believers. There's a much more elegant way of saying what I just spent the last 10 minutes saying. But I wanted us to understand that because... We must wrap our minds. It is vital to understanding the rest of the book of Ephesians correctly to wrap our minds around this concept. So my prayer for each of you, as I'm speaking this, I pray, Lord, please help us to understand. Give us the gift of comprehension that we can begin to understand the knowledge of Christ, the love of Christ, so that we are foundationally set for the rest of this book. The no, idea of knowing Christ is what drives us into a deeper relationship with him. We don't know more about him for the sake of knowing more. You don't know more about him to, to win the next Bible trivia game. Although that's fun. You don't know him to be able to outwit the atheist at work. Although that can be a good witnessing opportunity. You don't increase your knowledge for those things. Faith is not something that we feel. The certainty of faith is knowledge, but is acquired by the teaching of the Holy Spirit, not by the acuteness of our intellect. John Calvin. Our single aim in this life should be to know Christ more. That's the bottom line of this point. The application, the so what of this particular point is, our entire single aim in life as believers is to increase our knowledge of Christ. 
to, re- to understand our relation, to, to deepen our relationship with him. We are told over and over in scripture that everything that a believer is stems from him. Why would we not know him more? Why would we not exhaust ourselves in searching the unsearchable riches of Christ? Why would we not begin to look at the fullness of Christ to understand even a a, a minuscule amount of who he is? To fathom the unfathomable, to know the unknowable, to search the unsearchable, that is the goal, that is the requirement of the believer's life. Because when we begin to know him and understand him more, we glorify him in knowing him more. We are brought to a place of seeing our sin more and more revealed when we see his light more and more, when we understand him more. We are able to love our neighbors better as we learn more about his love. We are able to pray better and more correctly the more we know him because we know him better of whom we're communicating with. We are able to be better unified as a body of Christ, as a church, when we are more focused on Christ and learning more about him. Do you see how everything in a believer's life, from prayer to reading to living to breathing to loving to praising and worshiping together, is rooted foundationally in Christ? And we must know him more. It impacts everything. Our sole purpose is to know Christ more. My final point this morning, number three, prayer for the glory of Christ. So, so far, Paul has prayed for them to have strength in Christ. He's prayed for them to know Christ more. And now he's going to end in a doxology to pray for the glory of God, to pray for the glory of Christ. And truly, this is a benediction. This is generally, if you read Paul's epistles, this type of wording of verse 20 and 21 is found at the end of his books as he's closing out his final remarks to have them have, you know, a good day or whatever, however you want to word it. And yet Paul uses this benediction, this doxology. And by the way, a simple way to know if you're reading a doxology in Scripture is if it includes the word glory, reference to God, and the word amen. That is almost always a doxology found in Scripture. And so we understand this doxology, this, these words of prayer, that's what doxology means, this words of praise, excuse me, is these praiseworthy words of looking to God to praise him is closing out this section. So earlier when I mentioned that we're going to take kind of a violent shift in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1, this doxology indicates because he is wrapping up his current thoughts. He is wrapping up his argument for these first three chapters. He's like, okay, I've brought us to a point that I can summarize this, pray for them, give them a benediction and encouragement, and then shift gears into what else I have to say. So let's read verses 20 and 21 together. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he's gotten to the point where he has encouraged them. He's prayed for for God to give them this gift and explaining and expounding on Christ and his glories and how we are to know him who is beyond knowing. And now he says, now to him, of course, being the father, 
who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or understand. Think about that wording there for just a minute. This power that he is referencing is a power through which God works and does beyond what we can even ask and understand. As if this prayer isn't mind-blowing enough. Paul comes and says, and yet, when we ask everything according to the will of God, because everything he's just presented in this prayer is according to the will of God. It's according to Scripture, the revelation of Scripture. Even though all this is amazing, God can do so much more beyond what we can even ask or understand. God's power to work is beyond what we can even comprehend. We don't even know what to ask for. God's power is so far beyond what we can even comprehend. That what he can do in our lives is beyond what we even know to understand to even ask for. That is a powerful God that we serve. In fact, the original language, if you were to translate it verbatim from the Greek for, the, for its description of the power of God here, is very much excess of or beyond all measure. Very much excess of. Instead of reading it far more abundantly beyond, very much in excess of. Kind of gives it a different connotation in our, human, in our American minds, doesn't it, in English? The power of God is so much more beyond what we can even understand. And I would challenge us, especially in the Reformed tradition, I would challenge us not to overcorrect on the Word of Faith movement, okay? Because right here it says that works within us. What is the Word of Faith's claim to fame, right? You have the power of God in you. You can claim and name and, and get all the things and the big houses and all the things. And our, our effort, honestly... Just think about it. In our Reformed tradition, we want to overcorrect from that so much that we almost act like God's power isn't within us at all. We absolutely do. So lest we overcorrect on this, please understand what Paul is saying. The power of the living God, the creator of all the universe, who's beyond comprehension, who's four-dimensional. Think about someone in the first century describing something as four-dimensional. They didn't even understand dimensions in that regard. We think of 3D video games. It's beyond anything. He's, he's having trouble even having words to describe the God that he's describing. And then he says that he resides within us. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of that. That's why earlier I said not only, uh, excuse me, that's why earlier we, I said we have to depend on the power and strength of Christ to do the things that he's telling us to. But we don't have an excuse to not do them because we have the power of God. Let's not lose sight of that. For the Spirit does indeed indwell us. We do have the power that is beyond comprehension, that we don't even understand, we don't even know what to ask for. That power dwells within us. And there's a specific reason that that power dwells within us. I want you to think about the wording here that Paul has now been arguing now. Three chapters. Three chapters on the glorious beauty of redemption of the individual in chapter 1 on the glorious beauty of the reconciliation of the church between Jew and Gentile in chapter 2, on the beautiful glory of God in using someone who was diametrically opposed to everything of the way, everything of Christ. Paul redeemed, or God redeemed Paul, changing his name, making him his own, and using him to be the most impactful theologian and missionary the world has ever seen. He then summarizes all of this information in these three chapters to him be the glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He summarizes all this information, all this instruction to the glory of God in the church and in Christ forever and ever. To all the generations of the ages of the ages. The original language literally says to all the generations of the ages of the ages. There is no other way to describe the timeless, timelessness of God than that. Eternality is described no better than that right there. The generations of all the ages of the ages. Everything that I have mentioned this morning, everything that we have traveled through in these last three books, log into your mind, burn it in. All of it is to the glory of God in the church and in Christ forever. Everything we do, understanding the love of God, understanding the love of Christ, knowing and increasing our knowledge of him, everything has to be with the motivation for the glory of God. And that's what our application is for this third point. The so what for this third point is, do your prayers in law fall in line with the glory of God in the church and in Christ? Do your teachings fall in line? Do your motivations for what you're doing and learning and teaching fall in line with the glory of God and the church and in Christ forever? Does your motivation to learn more about Christ fall in line with, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ forever? Does the way that you parent, does the way that you work, does the way that you drive, the way that you eat, does everything you do fall in line with, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever? And what does the word amen mean? So let it be done. So I would challenge you to look at that, to always look at that, the glory of God in the church and in Christ. That is the very reason we exist, is for the glory of God. So this section of Ephesians, as I begin to conclude, ends the first half of this dramatically important epistle. And we are wrapping up the indicative teaching. I've used that word a few times, but I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. The indicative is Paul explaining what Christ has done. The imperative, which is where we're shifting to next week, is the command of what we are supposed to do because of that. The indicative of what Christ has done, the imperative, the command of what we're supposed to do. And so we've summed up this first three chapters, and it has been a beautiful experience. I have never grown in Christ and understood him better than digging into this book for us to discuss weekly. It's been a beautiful thing. And I hope you have been challenged as well. But if there's one thing that I want you guys to focus, to take away from this first three chapters, is that God's strength in us is what accomplishes everything we're about to, to cover. It's God's strength. It's our union with Christ foundationally that gives us the strength to do everything we're going to cover in the next however many weeks, till September-ish. It's God's strength in us. Rest in that. Rest in Christ. Rest in what he's done. Don't let this indicative wear you down, or this indicative slip from your mind, because the imperatives will wear you slap out 
you will be absolutely beat up by imperatives if you don't remember the indicatives. I would challenge each and every person in this room to read the first three chapters of Ephesians every week to prep for some Sunday sermon. Because our motivation has to be to glorify Christ. Every single sermon from here on out, pretty much, is going to be, this is how we live because of chapters 1 through 3. And I'm probably going to say it a lot, but I would challenge you to read chapters 1 through 3 in preparation. Because if we cannot, we cannot, I'll say it again, we cannot lose sight of Christ's work in us and resting in him for the rest of this book. I'm going to leave you with this quote from Calvin. It just sums up the first three chapters beautifully. The love of Christ is held out to us as the subject which ought to occupy our daily and nightly meditations and in which we ought to be wholly plunged. He who is in possession of this alone has enough. But there is nothing solid, nothing useful, nothing in short that is proper or sound outside of Christ. There's nothing else besides Christ. Let's revel in him. Pray with me. Holy God, we thank you so much. We praise you absolutely for revealing this to our finite minds. We thank you for the supernatural strength and understanding of the work of the Spirit within us that reveals to us just a fraction of who Christ is, that reveals just the small amount of, of the knowledge of Christ that we have been so blessed to understand. I pray that we would leave here motivated to learn more about you for the glory of you in the church in Christ. Help us to apply this as, as we go out in our daily lives, that all that we do is for your glory, and that all of our strength comes from Christ. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen.